0: Welcome again, we're about to uh, begin the last of our sermons in this series called Prequel, the story behind the story that we know. We know the story of Jesus. In fact, uh, this is an appropriate Sunday for us to talk about the tale of two kings because we know after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, we know that a star arose in the east and we know that magi, seers, advisors to kings, kings. saw that, understood the prophecy from the Old Testament for Daniel and other wise men had been carried off into captivity, had taken those religious books, they searched them, knew the meaning, and came looking for one who was born king of the Jews. And so today we're going to take a look at the first king from 1 Samuel chapter 13, Uh, King Saul, people pled for a king, and then the ultimate king that was given to us in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. But I wish this time not only to be a, a time of information and an increased understanding of your way and, and your word and, and the truth of the Bible, but also as it might apply in my own personal life, in the lives of those before me, so that I walk out of here uh, a better understanding uh, how you can use my life to my benefit, to, to the richness of my life and to the benefit of the world and the time in which I live. Lord, bless me to that end. I pray in Christ. Amen. We're talking about kings today. We don't have kings in America, but we have presidents. Uh, They have uh, monarch-like power, uh, can issue edicts that affect all the rest of us, and we have certainly seen that take place. And uh, these kings have have risen and fallen in favor from time to time. In fact, since 1937, when George Gallup began this business, uh, we have been rating our presidents by the president approval ratings with this simple question. Do you approve or disapprove of how the president is doing his job? Now, our present president is President Barack Obama. Uh, Is he at the height? Or the depth of his presidential approval rating. What do you think? (laughs) The depth. Unfortunately, just last month, he reached the lowest point in his approval rating, which is about 38% of people approve of what he's doing in his job. And that's typically the way it is with presidents. In fact, with pastors, (laughs) with leaders, you know, with CEOs, you know, we always have this high expectation of what they will accomplish. You know, when he was elected Uh, for a change that we could believe in. His presidential approval rating was like 70%. We were optimistic. you know. I think we were proud that this nation uh, uh, chose a a man who represented a minority point of view, uh, obviously a wise and gifted speaker, uh, that he could lead us. And we have been subsequently disappointed, at least according to approval ratings. But that isn't just true of him. That's true of other presidents as well. George Bush, a man of a different party, uh, had a One of the highest of all approval ratings. When do you think that occurred? Right after 9-11. At the end of that month in uh, September of 2001, his approval rating was like 90% of all Americans thought he's the great leader uh, that we need at this time and and things are going to change. His approval rating also uh, fell off. Uh, to a 30% rating when we began the battle for Iraq and did not find the weapons of mass destruction. And then there was President Clinton. It was President Clinton. You know, he had... He had an approval rating when he was elected of 73%, even higher than Barack Obama. You know, a, a wise man, a gifted man. Uh, you know, no one would doubt his intelligence, his economic policies uh, improved the nation. And then there was that thing, that Monica Lewinsky thing. And his approval ratings fell to one of the lowest of all times except for uh, President Nixon. You know, we have these great expectations, but then we realize our leaders have clay feet. And they disappoint. Is it because we change or is it because the office changes them? Some would argue the office changes them. In fact, historically, Lord Acton, a famous quote, 1887, a British historian uh, and also a member of parliament who commented on the nature of the world at that time, well-read man, said, Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Something happens when they get approval, when they get praise, when they get authority, when they get wealth, when they get power. There's um, an inability for us to handle blessing. Is that innate in the human condition? Abraham Lincoln said much the same. Interestingly, today he is considered our most uh, beloved president but only posthumously, He never during his life was he considered a great president, uh, maybe by the second inaugural address, uh, but uh, not before. Nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. That's what Lincoln said. And, and we know that he went on a vast search and replaced general after general searching for that man who could handle power and do it with character. And then we need go no further than this scripture, which is circled, underlined, and starred and highlighted in my Bible. Just as a reminder, every time I get there, Proverbs 27, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but a man is tested by praise. You know, can you handle praise? Can you keep your head straight? Can you be objective? Can you sort it out? I don't know if you were... uh, watching the news uh, just before Christmas, but uh, the Pontiff, uh, Pope Francis, came before the Roman Curia, uh, Latin for court. Uh, the Curia is a, is a college of cardinals that is responsible for the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church across the world. And he brought to them, as he always does, his Christmas message on December 22nd. And they, uh, they came expecting to be praised and, and to be reminded of the glorious work that they get to do because of Jesus Christ. And he had a different kind of message for them. Uh, In fact, he spoke about the 15 spiritual maladies of the pious and the powerful. And uh, he was pointed in his criticism of the leaders of the church. In fact, one commentator said, The cardinals were not amused. The speech was met by tepid applause and few were smiling. Look at these guys on either side of him. You know, not exactly happy. These are some of the things that he said are the maladies of the pious and the powerful. And I, I want you to translate this not just to what's wrong in the leadership of the Catholic Church, but what's, what's wrong in the human nature. I mean, if this is true of Christian leaders who are very learned, uh, knowledgeable, deep of faith, uh, how much more should it be a warning to us that they would feel indispensable, that somehow, you know, I'm significant and I should be honored as such. Marthaism, uh which is, you know, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. You know, excessive activity, you know, meaningless activity, just busyness. Mental and spiritual uh, petrification. Uh, that was uh, an intention of, uh, you know, just being uh, uh, always sour-faced, always concerned, lacking in a bold, aggressive mission focus, hiding behind your paperwork. Excessive planning, constantly planning, 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 never doing anything, just thinking about doing something. Poor coordination, and, and he went deeper into that issue of, of not working well with others. Um, spiritual Alzheimer's, he said, you know, we all entered ministry to be servants. You know, if you remember your motivation, have you lost, have you forgotten your motivation for coming into ministry? Rivalry and vainglory, you know, competition in the church. You people should be humble. Existential uh, schizophrenia. Yeah, uh, Forgetting that you came to be a pastor and now assuming a position of authority and desiring that others would give you the respect that is due your office. Uh, uh, gossiping, murmuring, and chatter needs no explanation. Defying leaders. Indifference to others. Funeral face. You know, this is important work and being solemn and being mean in the conducting of it because it's so serious. Hoarding. You know, hoarding either budgets Or hoarding uh, resources and not dispensing them for the purpose for which they have been gathered. Closed circles, cliques, you know, walling off some, uh, approving others. Worldliness and exhibitionism. If this is true in the church, how much more must we wrestle with that? Just think of the difficulty of God who wants to bless us, wants to bless me. Could I handle his blessing? What a difficult position for him to be in, to think, if I blessed you more, would it ruin you? If a parent knew that he was going to ruin a child by blessing them more, would a parent bless them? Or would he stay his hand? Well, Let's look at our scripture for today as we look at a tale of two kings from 1 Samuel chapter 13, beginning at verse 8. Now we're going to begin in the middle of this story, so let me just say what has happened. Uh, Israel has asked for a king, begged for a king. Samuel was their prophet. Uh, Before this time, they didn't have a king. They just had a judge that God would raise up to do whatever needed to be done. And there was always a prophet who would give to the judge advice and counsel, God's counsel. They were a theocracy led by God. Uh, Samuel was getting old, and his sons were evil. In fact, they stole the offerings. Uh, They were despicable men. And uh, this was hard for Samuel to take because he knew what his sons had become. And the people rejected his sons from being their prophet. And they said, we demand a king. And Samuel was upset, embarrassed. And God said, Samuel, let them have a king. And so he chose Saul for the king. And he counseled Saul as Saul began to reign. Now Saul was about to face a, a big task. One of the first big battles against the Philistines. And uh, Saul was told to wait for Samuel who would come and bless the troops. That's where we're going to pick it up in verse 8. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. I mean, the scripture tells us there were 6,000 chariots among the Philistines, more foot soldiers than you could count, just went on and on forever. Uh, They were clearly outnumbered, and the people began to be worrisome. So he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul, although he had been told to wait for Samuel, he himself offered up the burnt offering. Just as he had finished doing what he was not permitted to do, the prophet arrived. Don't you just hate it when that happens. And Saul went out to greet him. What have you done, said Samuel. God was actually testing Saul's heart for obedience and for trust. And Saul had failed the test. Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering, and that you had not come uh, by the set time, and the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against us at Gilgal, and I have not yet sought the Lord's favor. So I was compelled to do the religious thing, you know, to offer up the burnt offering myself. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the commandment that the Lord your God gave you. In fact, you demonstrated lack of leadership, spiritual leadership at a crucial time. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Your dynasty will not exist. Uh, The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Now, of course, we know that this was true in the person of David. Uh, Although Samuel had not yet met him, did not yet know this, he was prophesying but it was also true especially in the, perp- in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, and because you have not kept the Lord's command, he's going to seek one who will. So uh, Saul began well. He, he really did. In, in fact, he was a humble man. Uh, we are told uh, that God actually chose him to be king. It, it wasn't that he campaigned for the job like we campaign in America. In in fact, here's how it came about. Uh, Saul was the son of a man of Benjamin, uh, the smallest tribe in all of Israel. Uh, His father's donkeys were lost. And like any uh, father, he would send his son to go and find the donkeys. And and so he was in search for his father's livestock. And somebody told him, well, you should go and talk to the prophet. The prophet will tell you exactly where they are. And, And so he found Samuel, who was the prophet. And he said, I've, I've lost my father's donkeys. And somebody said, you could help me understand where they might be. He said, don't worry about your father's donkeys. They've already been found and recovered. But I want you to stay overnight because you are God's chosen man to lead his people. And here's how uh, Saul reacted to that news initially. He said, am I not a Benjamite from the smallest of all the tribes of Israel? And my family is the least in the tribe of Benjamin? Benjamin? Why would you say such a thing to me? You know, so he was not eager for the job. In fact, when he was told uh, he was going to be this great leader, he said, I'm not qualified. I, I don't see myself in that way. Later, when they gathered the whole nation together, and in front of all the leaders, Samuel cast lots, a means by which they would eliminate choices until finally they arrived at the right choice. The lot fell to the tribe of Benjamin, the lot fell to a certain clan. The lot fell to a certain family. The lot fell to a certain man. Clearly God's choice was Saul. And so Samuel said, where is he that we might anoint him king? You know where Saul was? He was hiding in the baggage. You know, he already knew how this was going to turn out. Even before the lots had been cast. And uh, he was embarrassed and hesitant to assume that job. In fact, uh, after he was anointed king, uh, he didn't immediately demand respect as a king. The scripture tells us he went back to his farm. In fact, the first time they needed him, he was plowing with the oxen. And they said, come lead us. And so he left his father's farm to come and lead them like the judges had done before. That was the initial heart and state of the man Saul. You know, we look back on him now and think of him as an evil king. But he was actually a, a very humble and, and righteous man to begin with. In fact, when he was chosen king, the Bible tells us certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? You know, they didn't believe in him. Why him? Why not us? And they despised him and they would not give him the honor he deserved. And even then, Saul kept quiet about those guys. He didn't demand they be punished, he didn't demand their respect. He showed a tremendous humility. Despite this unfaithfulness, On the part of Saul, this this lack of trust, this lack of belief, it was more than just you know an expedient thing. Uh, uh, There's there's something in the judgment that that God uh, levels against Saul that indicates there's a basic lack of trust. Uh, His insecurity was greater than just his lack of belief in himself. He lacked belief in God to do extraordinary things through him, like many of us. You know, he's saying, "Who are we? You know, what what difference can I make in the world?" That's the way Saul felt. And yet God continued to love him. We know because he was made king when he was 40 years old. And he was allowed to continue as king, even though this happened very early in his life. He was allowed to continue as king for 32 more years. And God gave him many, many victories during this time. He would just not let his dynasty uh, live beyond his own life. For God's love is unconditional, but God's blessing is almost always conditional. You think about that with a, a wise parent. A wise parent's not going to bless a child. Not a wise parent. I've seen parents do it. But a wise parent's not going to encourage a child in bad behavior. You know, if your child gets caught in bad behavior, I hope you don't take the position of defending your child when you know your child is wrong. I hope you don't try to rationalize and explain their behavior in that circumstance. Well, you know, this other person did this first. You know, just acknowledge the fact that your child was wrong. Don't encourage wrong behavior. Don't bless wrong behavior, right? The Bible says, as a parent disciplines a child, so God disciplines us because he loves us. That's the nature of a loving and wise parent. And so God wasn't going to bless and encourage Saul in his bad behavior. And there was a difference between, uh, you know, uh, continuing to love him, continuing to care about him, but not encourage wrong behavior. It's interesting that Saul began very humble, but by something about power changed him because by the end when he was winning battles he was building statues to himself he was bringing the spoil back from war when he had been forbidden to bring the spoil it was to be an offering to god and so he was completely ignoring god and when he felt that god had removed his favor instead of humbling himself and and trying to restore the relationship there's an old saying if god has moved uh, if god seems far away guess who moved You know, God didn't want to move away from Saul. Saul moved away from God. When he felt God's distance, he said, I don't need God. And he began to seek the the wisdom of witches and and, uh, sorcerers. And so he had fallen this far away from God. Uh, God won't bless that kind of condition. Uh, You know, his blessing is conditional. When he finds people that he can use, then he'll, he'll dump blessing on them so that more could be accomplished. And yet God remains faithful even when we do not. You know, contrast Saul to uh, King David who followed after him. David was also a sinful man. You know, if Saul didn't wait for the blessing of Samuel, think about David. You know, David took another man's wife for himself. He made sure that that man was killed in battle. God uncovered his sin. David repented, a sincere repentance, not a superficial repentance, a sincere repentance. And then later, at the end of his life, David wanted to, conduct a census of all the nation to find out what a great king he was. And uh, the Lord said, if you're going to take a census for the purpose of pride, I'm going to send a plague upon your people and they are going to die so that uh, while you're adding, I will be subtracting until David again repented and God restored uh, his favor. Uh, God does not wish to harbor his anger against us. Uh, He will remain faithful if we will just come back to him. In fact, so sincere was David as opposed to Saul in seeking God's favor and restoring uh, God's blessing in his life that God ultimately at the end of his life when David said, let me build a temple for you, God. I live in a house, a palace. Let me build a temple for you. Your, your Ark of the Covenant still resides in a tent. God said, no, David, you are a man of war and you have blood on your hands. Let your son build a temple for me. But this I will do for you, David. David. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up an offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons. And I will establish his kingdom. He will be the one who will build a house for me. Now, clearly David thought he was talking about Solomon. But he wasn't just talking about Solomon. And I will establish your throne forever. You will be his father and he will be my son. And I will never take my blessing from him as I took it away from your predecessor. Saul, you know, where did they go to find the king of kings and the lord of lords? The magi came to Herod's palace because that's where kings were born. Uh, The star didn't lead them immediately to Bethlehem. Uh, It just led them in the general vicinity uh, of, of Israel. And they went to the palace to see this king. And then Herod himself consulted with his own wise men who knew the scriptures. And they said, the Bible tells us he is to be born in Bethlehem. So off they went. To Bethlehem to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. So that is the tale of the first king. The tale of the second king is predicted also in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 9, when he says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, authority will rest on him, and he will be called this is a truly great leader, a wonderful counselor, mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his authority and his peace, there will be never an end. He will reign on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this, and indeed he did. You know, the wise men did find and fall down and present to him gifts worthy of a king. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Even later in in our own Lord's life, when he stood before Pilate with the accusation that he was a king and we have no king except Caesar, crucify him. Pilate said, Tell me the truth. Are you a king? Jesus did not deny it. He said, You have said rightly, I am a king, but my kingdom is not of this world. There are Christians today who still look for Jesus to return and reign a thousand years upon the king to establish a millennium reign. Uh, as though he has not already fulfilled that that aspect of the prediction when in fact Jesus will not be limited even to a thousand years he is king of all time and of all people and over all places the bible says at his second coming every knee even those who have crucified him will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is lord and he would be a king after god's own heart you know he told saul Samuel told Saul, I'm going to choose another man who will be a king after God's own heart. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, uh, it sounded like lightning had thundered, but really it was the voice of God. And and, uh, he said, uh, this has been done to indicate that my time has come. And what should I say? Father, spare me from this hour? No, for this hour I was born. Father, glorify your name. You know, he was willing to accept his father's mission you know, perfectly, even if it meant his death, even death upon a cross. We know that when Peter in the garden drew his sword and and began to fight for the life of Jesus, Jesus said, Peter, don't you realize who I am? That I could call upon my father and he would send angels to defend me? This is my time, and for this reason I have been born. Jesus also overcame every kind of temptation of power. Unlike uh, many of us who uh, are changed by power, Jesus refused to be changed. When he changed the the loaves and the fish and fed 5,000 people, they wanted to make him king. And everybody looked for him to be that kind of a king that would rule over a time and over a place and do miracles to establish Israel's pride like it had once had under David and under Solomon of old. He sent them away. He refused to be called their king. When Peter said uh, to Jesus about his coming death, after Jesus had spoke plainly about it he said this will never happen to you Jesus said get behind me satan you're tempting me now you're tempting me with thoughts of the world you know uh, your mind is not on the will of god but rather upon the will of man so jesus was indeed able to overcome power and to keep focused on the mission which raises the question you know how might we handle the blessing of god you know if power corrupts And absolute power corrupts absolutely. What would God's blessing do to you? Can you handle God's blessing? Is God refraining from blessing you because it would destroy you? The tale of Saul is a tale of what might have been. What might have been. I wonder what might be for me. You know, if if I were the kind of faithful person focused on the mind of God, like he said... You know, Saul should have been so he could have established his legacy forever. There, there's a great scene in the, the Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, where uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, you know, the uh, the antagonist in the, in the story, who is uh, selfish and and miserly and and focuses uh, and and requires his his servants to work even on the holidays, uh, he is visited by specters of Christmas past and Christmas present and Christmas yet to come. And uh, he has made a mess of things like many of us have. And even now our life maybe isn't what we hoped it would be. You know, so the ghost of Christmas present wouldn't paint a pretty picture. But then you wonder, so what does the future hold? Am I destined like Saul for demise? Or is there a possibility like David that we could turn things around? It's an interesting statement that is made uh, by Dickens. Uh, as he describes the scene, that specter stood among the graves and he pointed down to one grave, the one that had his name on it, and he advanced towards it trembling. The phantom was exactly as he had been, you know, unmoved. And he dreaded what he saw, new meaning in this solemn shape. Before I draw near to that stone to which you point, said Scrooge, answer me this question. Are these the shadow of things that will be? Is this predetermined? Is this my fate? Or are they shadows of things that only may be? Still the ghost pointed down to the grave by which it stood. Another great phrase. When men's courses foreshadow certain ends to which it persevered in, they must lead, said Scrooge. But if the course be departed from, the end will change. Say it is thus with what you are about to show me. This is our moment. You know, our past and our present foretell a certain end, foretell a certain path that we are on. Is that a path that's pleasing to you? Does it honor the Lord? Are you demonstrating a a faithfulness to his will in your life? You know, we all fall short. There's none of us who is perfect, the Bible says. All of us could look at ways in which we could be more faithful to the Lord and more faithful, more rich in his favor. More rich in his favor, able to accomplish more things. What an incredible thing to pause for a moment and say, you know, is that inevitable that I proceed as I have? Or can I alter my course and alter the outcome? Because we know some things about God. We know that his love never fails. You know, he loves even those who have died without faith. You know, to his sorrow he watched them move further and further away from him. His heart bled for Saul that Saul would not return but rather persisted in his ways to his own demise. His love remained unconditional, but his blessing almost always conditional. His desire to favor and, and, and uh, prosper you in ways that would be good for you, in ways that would be good for others, but being wise to not encourage bad behavior. And yet we know that he will remain faithful even when we are not. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, He said, God remains faithful even though we be faithless because he cannot deny himself. That's just his nature. He is faithful, but he is also wise. So have you availed yourself to his blessing? Nothing you can do can remove you from his love. You know, he he will love you to the end. All day long, the scripture says, he holds out his hand to an obstinate and disobedient people. But his favor, that's another matter. You know, to be within his will and to have his favor... And to see miracles accomplished in your life, that's a powerful thing. It's a matter of the heart. In fact, there's a, another story that, that comes in the Luke 1 account or the Luke 2 account, uh, where after 40 days they bring the baby Jesus up to the temple for the purification of his mother as was required by the law. And for the dedication of that child to the Lord to redeem him back because the first of everything uh, in the Jewish way of thinking and in the Christian way of thinking really belongs to God and should be redeemed back and we raise it to his glory. And so they brought the Lord there and there was an old man named Simeon uh, who had been told he would not die until he would seen the Lord's Christ. And as soon as he saw him, the spirit prompted him to say, this is the one, this is the Messiah, this is the king of kings. And he took him in his hands and he said uh, a powerful thing to him. He blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined, he's talking about us, is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. You know, for your blessing or for your detriment. Where do you stand with Jesus? You know, if you stand with him and you desire to be obedient to him, the favor and the blessing of God uh, can accomplish miraculous things in very ordinary lives. But if we don't. We can't expect the Lord to favor and bless that kind of life. Instead, he will frustrate us until we turn away from that life back to the life that is narrow, that leads to his favor. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you um, for revealing to us uh, that despite the unfaithfulness of people, uh, your love never fails. Uh, Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, we admit that uh, our past is not something that we would completely brag about. Some good things have been accomplished and, and, and some things that we would be embarrassed if they were revealed. And in our present, Lord, we have not always been completely focused on you. It's impossible for a human being uh, to maintain that perspective in life. And yet you desire to bless us. So help us every day, Lord, to, to uh, rise and to acknowledge our fault and to praise you for your grace and your favor and your continued abiding love. Help us to realize that you desire to accomplish great things through ordinary people, uh, even through our lives. And bless us to that end, we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.